In the name of Jesus, our Jewish Savior, who loves us more than he loved his own life, my dear friends, uh, happy Father's Day, happy Juneteenth Day. You know the word amnesia? You know what that is? It's meaning, it means you've lost memory, forgetful. Now, a lot of that happens with aging. Um, my children are pretty much convinced that I'm well down the road to memory loss. Uh, some call it dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, the nice thing about being, at least being in happy dementia, is you don't notice what you don't know, what you can't remember anymore. And you also, if you're forgetful, you can't remember what you were so upset about. And so it's a very happy life because you only stay mad for about 30 seconds and then you lose focus and can't remember what it was that was bugging you. Uh, that's, everybody knows that. We're all headed for that kind of future as our bodies break down. Sometimes amnesia comes from a head injury of some kind, like if you've been in an accident and get your bell rung. If you're playing sports and you get a concussion, there can be short or sometimes long-term memory loss due to head trauma. And things disappear because our brain, uh, in that 2.2 pounds of gray sludge sloshing around between our ears, that's where our memories are parked. And if that tissue is damaged, it can do things to our memories. Sometimes, though, amnesia is deliberate. And I want to talk to you today about one of the most painful stories in American history that hardly anybody knows about. And how is it possible that hardly anybody knows about it? It's because of deliberate amnesia. And I'm going to bring up this story as painful as it is because it illustrates our need to work on racial reconciliation because it never happens by itself. It is learned behavior. Instinctive behavior gravitates towards a sinful way of looking at the world. We are all tribal. We're all, of course, born as a particular person. You may have European-looking features. You may have Asian-looking features or American Indian-looking features or Hispanic features or African-looking features. And that tribalism that we're all born with, your particular language your, from a particular country can easily become something that divides instead of unites. And we gravitate towards our unique set of identifiers and feel only comfortable when we're surrounded with people just like us. And so to overcome that, it is a conscious choice that is needed. Here is a, a painful example from American history of why that's necessary. This June, June of 2021, marks the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Can we do a little social experiment here? I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but how many of you could explain to somebody else what the Tulsa massacre was? Raise your hand if you can. Okay, looks to me like about eight. Uh, so I'm, I won't be boring you if I just go over a couple of the particulars. Tulsa, Oklahoma was actually a pretty good place to be black. Even though it was in the South, even during the Jim Crow years of the 1920s, even though the Klan was on its way to a resurgence in the 20s, Oklahoma was a pretty good place for black folks to be. For one thing, there was a lot of prosperity. Oil was becoming dominant in Oklahoma's economy, and 
because so many wells were being discovered, a lot of wealth was flowing through Oklahoma and, and black folks were getting a piece of their share. And Tulsa was sort of, Tulsa is not only the buckle on the Bible Belt, it's very proud of its Christian heritage, but was doing really well economically because of the oil boom and the automobiles now uh, suddenly becoming very thirsty for gasoline. And there was segregation back then, obviously, of course, there is sort of everywhere. But the black part of town in Tulsa was called Greenwood, the Greenwood District. And uh, even though it was sort of walled off by itself, in a sense, by segregation, black folks didn't seem to mind because they had all their own stuff. It was a huge neighborhood, um, like 40 or 50 square blocks, economically booming. In fact, its nickname at the time of the First World War was the Black Wall Street. There were black entrepreneurs, hotel owners, entertainment of every kind, human services, everything you could imagine, every kind of store you would want was black run. So there was black entrepreneurship, black schools, black churches, and the times were booming. On June 1st, well, actually on May 31st, the day before it started, the day before, you can guess how this happens. A black teenager gets an elevator ride from a white teenage girl. Back then, elevators weren't automatic. You needed an operator. And when he hops out on the top floor, she accused him of sexual assault. And he was immediately arrested and put in the local jail. And a lynch mob began forming. You know, there's nothing that really gets a white supremacist blood boiling, like the thought of your pure Caucasian women being molested by a person of color, a, a, a male of color. And uh, there was talk that a lynch mob was going to be formed. And this was no idle threat. There were lynchings everywhere in America in the 1920s. And the, the black men of Greenwood had enough self-confidence that they said, nobody is going to lynch one of us without a fair trial. We are not gonna let this happen. And about somewhere between 75 and 100 men got weapons and surrounded the jail. Or at least, I'm not sure if it was the jail. They, they had a special place to hold them. The sheriff actually took them up uh, to an upper floor and barricaded him in and said, nobody is gonna take my prisoner until he has a chance to be in court. But this white mob shows up and you know, a little pushing and shoving starts. Uh, one old white guy tries to take a black guy's weapon away and he shoots him and all of a sudden firing breaks out. Two black men were killed on the spot. 10 white guys were killed. Uh, that is a score that white males cannot accept. Uh, that you lost 10 and you only took out two. Uh, so they retreated and then began a massive scale up. And this is where everything really got ugly. The white deputies swore into temporary duty dozens and dozens and dozens of other white males, issued them weapons from the armory. So now you've got a gigantic militia. Not only that, they went out to the airstrip and found 10 or a dozen airplanes and guys made turpentine bombs uh, like for causing fires and took rifles with them. And actually this 
small army now attacks Greenwood and literally made it their mission to wipe it off the face of the earth. Burnt down 35 square blocks out of the roughly 40 in Greenwood. Shot people indiscriminately. No one knows for sure how many black folks were killed in that massacre. It was, it was not a fair fight. It was just a race massacre is what it was. Somewhere between 100 and 300 people. Uh, radar or sonar or whatever kind of technology has detected mass graves that they're now working through the legal process to open them up and discover if that's where some of the bodies disappeared to in this mass grave. But 300 people, black folks, disappeared in Tulsa. 10,000 became homeless overnight. And these airplanes actually would come in and strafe the civilians. They would shoot at them and drop these turpentine uh, firebombs and burnt buildings down. Do you know today of that booming, thriving, historic Greenwood District, only one building is left standing today, a church, and it had sev pretty severe damage that had to be rebuilt. Now, that story's incredible enough. It's, can you imagine, black folks, how hard it is for making my white lips move to tell you that story? I'm so ashamed. I feel this heavy weight on me that I can't shuck off. It's humiliating that this is part of our nation's story. Uh, from sea to shining sea, I want to sing America the Beautiful and sing all the patriotic songs, but stories like this haunt me and give me nightmares. What if that was me? What if I was living in Tulsa? What if I was black and saw this angry, small army coming at me? What if I was white? Would I have got sucked in and been given a shotgun and said, here, go make things right? What would I have done? If I'd have got sucked into that, I have no idea where I'd have ended up. It gives me the willies even thinking about it. Here's the worst of it. The people of Oklahoma in general, and Tulsa in particular, decided on selective amnesia, deliberate amnesia, and they pretended like it never happened. They just bulldozed all the buildings, flattened them out, and let something else be there. One or two newspaper articles had been printed, small ones, you know, like little back corner, like there was a minor disturbance in the Greenwood District. Minor disturbance. 35 square blocks were burnt to the ground. And when, when um, archival sets of the Tulsa newspapers were bound together, all the articles that referred to the massacre were clipped out. It was never mentioned in official state histories. And even though Oklahoma history has been taught to every grade school and high school student since that time, the story did not appear in any of the accounts. And, as and this is so crazy. I think the white folks thought job accomplished. We have beat black folks down back off the ladder. They're back down on the ground where they belong on their hands and knees. And job, job finished, we didn't need to talk about it anymore. The black folks, many of them fled. They said, this is a loony bin, we're getting out of here. The ones who remained were so terrified and demoralized, they didn't raise up their heads uh, too high and didn't make too much noise. And the story disappeared. 
It was not until the 1940s that somebody did a master's thesis, but it was never published. And it was not until really comparatively recently that anybody's really digging into this atrocious story of racism in our country. Now, I, I tell you this not to drag you down. I, this is really a day of celebration. I tell you that painful story because of the necessity of doing your homework, of really getting to see our country for the way it is, and to look at racism and all its ugliness and not deny it. That must be somebody else's problem. It, it's, it's on all of us. What are we going to do with this? What do black folks do with that painful knowledge? What do white folks do with that painful knowledge? I'd like to uh, share a story. It's going to seem, the damage done seems almost pale by comparison. But uh, this story in scripture talks about how easily people get polarized and withdraw from one another. See, that's what happens under stress is we pull away from one another and retreat into our comfort zones. And black communities for centuries have had their own ways of pulling back into the comfort of people like them where they can share their experiences, tell their stories, lick their wounds and try to scar over and heal up internally. White folks have their own way of pulling back from stressful interactions with people not like them. It's always much, so much easier to hang out with people just like you. And that was happening in the apostolic age. You know, we might think of it as a golden age of evangelism. The great day of Pentecost brings an inflow of Gentile believers into the faith. But then stuff happens like this. And here is what Paul is writing to the Galatians, because this is their issue too. Galatia is not a city, it's a region in the center of what is today Turkey. Back then it was one of the zones or provinces of the Roman Empire. And although there, was a, a couple, there were a couple of synagogues there where Paul on his missionary journeys connected with the Jews first, he always went to the synagogues and told people our Messiah is here. But he also freely went out in public places, got to meet people and told them about the Savior, Jesus Christ. So his mission churches that he planted all automatically were going to be multiracial and it was not easy going at first because the Jews were not ready. While they knew in their heads Christ has come and ended the ceremonial laws. They knew that in their heads, their hearts and bodies were still in their old habits. When you've been eating kosher for your whole adult life, it's really hard to chomp down on a, on a pork chop. You know, you, when you've been taught that a pig is evil, uh, you, don't, you think in your mind that bacon will taste terrible. <laughs> I wonder how many sniffs of frying bacon it took to warm the Jews up to, uh, to the concept that, that bacon is not so bad after all. That it, with proper care, uh, pork is, is great fun. They did not grasp the fact that the restrictive laws of separating themselves and kosher eating and all of the social fences that God put around them was not because those things were evil in and of themselves, but because God could not trust his Israelites 
to keep their faith intact, to hold on to the word and hold on to the promises. If you read the book of Genesis uh, and see how crazy things were getting, he, God was afraid his people were going to be assimilated into the Canaanites around them. And for, from God's point of view, it was a major risk that the people of Israel would lose their faith. So he said, I got to put them somewhere where they can grow up as a nation and keep their identity. And I'm going to have to keep their racial identity in order to keep their religious identity. So he put fences around them to keep them in because he couldn't trust them while they were children. But when Christ came, God said, you're adults now. Your time of being a minor is over. You know, we, we act the same way. There are certain things that you and I, we don't want 14-year-olds doing. We don't want 14-year-olds operating a motor vehicle on the freeways. That's not to beat them down. It's not to treat them with disrespect. It's that you're not quite ready for this level of responsibility. There's a reason why we don't have 13-year-olds able to sign legal contracts. You don't understand what you're doing. You're not yet in a position to accept responsibility for carrying out your side of the contract. And so you can't do that. You're a minor. There's a reason why we don't want 12-year-olds walking into a liquor store and going out with a quart of vodka. There's a reason for that. Not to show disrespect to the 12-year-old, you should learn about these things and study it. You should be aware of the risks. And at age 21, um, you now have the legal right to start exercising a little more freedom. And so when God lifted the food rules, it was not because all those different foods were evil in and of themselves. It's that they were part of a social fence that God used to kind of keep people away. The demand of ritual circumcision on, on Jewish males was to impress on them your differentness. That stopped with the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is no longer a demand. The, the keeping away, the viewing of clean and unclean, those rules were over. But it was over maybe in, in the minds of these Jewish Christians, but not, they, they lurched backwards into their old habits when things got a little stressful with their new Gentile friends. From Galatians chapter 2, here's a story. When Paul was in Antioch, this is in Syria, um, a lot of Gentiles in that congregation. Peter comes up from Jerusalem, uh, and Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Did you know that the apostles didn't always agree? Did you know that being an apostle does not mean you stop sinning? or that you sometimes, when you're freelancing on your own, you don't sometimes utter things that are false. Peter backslid from what he had been proclaiming, and Paul opposed him to his face. This is shocking. We sort of think the apostles cannot make any mistakes. Well, this one did. Because he was in the wrong, before certain men came from James, James is the uh, Jesus half-brother, the sort of official or unofficial head of the church in Jerusalem, kind of the, the leader of the pack of the old boys network. Does that help kind of explain it? Okay, a good man, but also overly protective of the traditions that had been now made optional by the coming of Christ. He used to eat with the Gentiles, 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's a nickname for the old boys network who wanted to believe in Jesus but have all of the ceremonial and social laws that God had intended to be temporary and God had, had um, done away with. In Colossians, Paul writes that he nailed them, Christ nailed them to the cross. They aren't necessary anymore. Those were for your minority. You're big now. God is trusting you with the freedom not uh, to lose your identity in the wider Gentile world. Now your mission is nothing less than to convert all the Gentiles. And he's equipped us with the outpouring, the great outpouring of spirit gifts to do that very thing. Can you imagine the embarrassment and shame of these Gentiles where one day you come over to their house, hang out with them, eat their food, touch them, like hug them, treat them as brothers and sisters, but then a day later, you no longer will do that. You will not touch them because they are unclean. You will no longer put their food in your mouth because now you've branded that food as being unclean. Does that make you want to go to the congregation and hang out with the other Jews? Heck no! You'd be, a sh you'd be humiliated. And, and when somebody of Peter's stature was doing that, then the other Jews would follow his lead. So this was a major deal. You might think, well, it's just a little food or whatever. No, this is a big deal. You are backsliding into that old separation when you have been called to be together and evangelize people together. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. That's a hard word, isn't it? Hypocrisy. Peter was a hypocrite. He knew better. What, is, what does hypo hypocrisy mean? It means you know one thing to be true, but you say something else for personal advantage. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. You say things you know are not true. It comes from a Greek word that means you have a mask on, um, that you are concealing what you truly think. Hypocrites are liars, and Peter was lying to those people. And he was babying the Jews who needed to grow up because their mission was to connect with the wider world. Not just to stay separate, but to bond and to overcome the distances between them. Peter already had gone through this with Cornelius once, and he knew better. But the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray, one of Paul, Paul's associate on his first missionary journey. So the leadership is being corrupted. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, now, you can't see it there, but there's air quotes around Gentile sinners. This is sarcasm. He's mocking them by what he's saying, as though Jews aren't sinners. We know that people are justified not by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, in other words, it's, it's his gift, not your performance. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. 
that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law. Why? Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Our relationship with Christ is a gift. It's the gift of the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit who has brought you the information you need and given you the faith in your heart to get it, grasp it, and believe it, and now is working patiently with you to live it. And we have been called, commissioned by Christ in some of his last words repeatedly almost every time he appeared to his disciples after he had risen from the dead, he commissioned them for their new task of bringing the gospel to the nations. Here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, so bust it out of the Jewish ghetto, as you, as you might call it, and to the ends of the earth. And you can't do that if you're looking down at other people the way James and John did it, looking down at the Samaritans and saying, well, they rejected you, Jesus. Let's kill them all. And that painful story of shall we, shall, as though we have the power to call down God's burning sulfur nuclear strike on Samaritans, that is so painful, isn't it? Let's kill them because they're not like us and they didn't accept the message on their first try. Let's kill them all. That sounds like Greenwood all over again. Just human sin, and Jesus scolded them and just thought, we'll come back, we'll come back here. And they went to a different place. Well, where does this leave us for today? Yesterday was a Juneteenth Day here in Milwaukee. It has now, I understand, become a national holiday. We'll be hearing more about it, and that is fine with me because it is a great platform and opportunity for us to overcome the selective amnesia that infects too much of us. And in my own past, um, I, I took a lot of history courses in high school and college, and the, the piece of history of black folks in America was very briefly sketched out. A um, little bit about the importation of slaves in colonial times, uh, the run-up to the Civil War, the bitter national debate, the war, the Emancipation Proclamation, the surrender, um, reconstruction of the federal troops in the South, insisting that black folks now had the right to vote. Uh, they all pulled out uh, to give the Republican candidate in 1876 the presidential victory, and the trade-off for that in a very disputed presidential election was all of the federal troops were pulled out of the South, leaving black folks to the tender mercies of the white Southern police forces and sheriffs and legal system, which were stacked against them. And bit by bit, the right to vote was pounded out of black folks' lives in the South. So we knew about that. Uh, almost nothing else until uh, civil rights movement of the 1950s and just skimmed over all kinds of stuff. This is our time to overcome that selective amnesia. Black folks, you got to know your own story. You've heard plenty from your families, but that isn't enough. Take this seriously. Get your nose in some books and read the story of the incredible triumphs of what black folks have been through in the U.S. Be so proud. Study not only the ways in which you've been victims, but have overcome the heroes and heroines of the black world who are 
aspirational role models for young folks and let them see and celebrate uh, the greatness of gifts within black America. We're singing a little bit of the music today. I hope uh, it was stirring your heart and got your feet moving. There are so many ways in which black folks have made contributions to the U.S. that make us a richer people. Celebrate that among each other. And if you, if you don't know some of the stories, you, there's the internet, even if you can't get to a library, the internet opens all that up to you. Read, read, read. White folks, it's even more, I'm putting it on you to learn those stories as well. You need to know. I get why you want to run away from stories like the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's stressful, it's humiliating, and it leaves you with this guilty like wet blanket on your heart. But we need to know because it helps us understand why maybe black folks today do not feel an emotional trust in the police. And most white folks that I know love the police. They depend on the police. They are not paranoid about the police. Well, guess why? Most white folks don't understand that low level of fear black folks have in the police because the police, especially in the South, were used as the instruments to impose first slavery and then the Jim Crow laws keeping black folks down. And black folks have a long way to go to get to the point where they see a squad car and think there's somebody there to protect me and help me. We need to get that and know why. It'll help us have some patience, help us have a listening ear, and help us be careful of our choices of words. Another reason white folks run away from black folks is we're afraid to say the wrong thing. We don't want to put our foot in it, and it's safest just to stay away uh, and hang out with, with our own kind of homies. That's not, that's not very mature. It's not very wise. It isn't going to help America move forward, and it certainly is not Christian. This story from Antioch of Paul publicly scolding Peter for creating racial gaps instead of erasing racial gaps and choosing to engage is encouragement for you and for me. And I just got to close today with putting some love on you. First of all, thank you for sitting still and letting me air out these hard, hard subjects. My heart's pounding like a million miles a minute. I'm scared of putting my foot in it. I'm scared of starting something I can't finish or getting you all riled up or upset or angry or disappointed or gloomy or making things worse. So uh, putting my foot in it is, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with this, I just got to tell you. But I got to put some love on you because you know what you did? You not only are letting me take you into some very stressful thoughts when we want to usually come to church for happy, happy, happy talk and made to feel better and, and everything's fine and we fly home on wings of hope. But the wings of hope do not come so much from us, they come from Christ. It is his love for us that gives us the model, his unconditional love for us that gives us the power, his commissioning of us that gives us the incentive. And I put love on you because you have chosen intentionally to be part of a multiracial community. Black folks, you are trusting that the white folks here are gonna respect you and love and welcome you. Respect, love, and welcome. This is such a big deal where we need to go from here. White folks, you are 
coming outside of your comfort zone and you are engaging with people that in many ways other white folks like you have hurt in the past. You are coming here and showing up and putting your face here and taking the chance that you will be of some usefulness to the kingdom's work. This is hard to do. How many white members have had their friends say, what are you going to that church down, down in the inner city for? Like, aren't there enough churches out here where you live? How many black folks have had friends that are saying, why do you go to a historically white church? What on earth are you going there for? Aren't our black churches in Milwaukee good enough for you? But you have chosen to be part of a multiracial ministry, and I can't stop loving you for that, because this is how it gets better. When you get close enough to people to love them, to ask them about their stories, to listen, to show love, respect, and welcome. Love, respect, and welcome is not just some nice things. It is the, our heartbeat of the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. You have been incredibly blessed by the unconditional love of Christ. You can't be a good communicator of it until you learn how to talk to somebody not like you. And if you failed a few times, okay, so did Jesus' disciples, Peter included. And he got over that and got better and learned. So don't stop just because you've got some disappointing stories in your past. Do not stop and let us build a culture here of love, respect, and welcome. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church.